Amen. You may have a seat. And as you're grabbing your seat, uh, reach for your copy of the scriptures and you want to make your way over to that Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. We were in Ecclesiastes 5 just a few weeks ago, and then we had the privilege of hearing from uh, Dr. Paul Twiss. But we want to return to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Everyone's going out to check this to make sure. Is that my car? All right. Well, let's begin with this question. As people are coming back in, why did you come in the first place? Why did you show up this morning? You obviously woke up, you got yourself ready. You ate, you put on your clothes. Why did you come to worship? No doubt there are countless people who showed up to church this morning because it's just custom. It's what they're used to doing. That was certainly me for, for many years, show up to church, maybe for a wedding, maybe for a holiday. The most, at the max, it would be three times a year, a wedding, Easter, and Christmas. Maybe you show up for worship, but it's not God that you're worshiping itself. Maybe you come to worship just out of duty or superstition. There are many people who want things to go better in their life, and so they feel like if they come and they put in their time, then God will see their good deed and reward them. So others come not necessarily to be edified, encouraged, equipped, but they come to be entertained. You see, there are many reasons why people walk through the doors of a church building, but we need to examine this morning. What about you? Why did you come today? What's the motivation of your heart? The question I want us to consider as we come to Ecclesiastes 5 is, how can you ensure that your worship, that your presence here today is genuine and authentic? Do you have an earnest desire to truly worship the Lord in spirit and truth? I think the starting point for understanding why we worship is understanding who it is that we're coming to worship. The starting point is always going to be with God. And my fear is that people don't truly know God, and so we offer up unacceptable worship. And you know this. This isn't just a modern problem. Jesus himself rebuked the people of his day when he quoted Isaiah the prophet, who was 700 years before he stepped on the scene. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15. He says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Listen, church, the way that we worship matters to God. And clearly, there is a proper way, a right way to worship him, and there is a wrong way to worship him. Listen to the words of David McCullough as he identifies this wrong kind of worship. He says this. He says, sometimes what passes for worship is more human-centered than God-centered. We want to make sure everyone gets something out of the experience, and for good reason. This tends to be the standard most of us use to judge whether a service was meaningful or not. Was I inspired? Or were the sermon and the music to my liking? Were my needs met? And if not, there's another church down the street to try next Sunday. But, he says, what difference does that make if God is not at the center? End quote. We make our worship meaningless when we make worship all about us. And what happens is our worship actually becomes an offense to God. It is dishonoring to God when we put ourselves in the center or when we dishonor him when we know intellectually that all glory and honor belong to him, that he needs to be center stage, but we just go through the motions and we come and don't give our time in a morning like this much thought and consideration. And so again, the question that we're going to examine this morning is, how are you treating God? How are you, in your heart, truly offering worship to God? And I think Ecclesiastes 5 is going to help because Ecclesiastes 5, the beginning of it anyway, is all about how we approach God in worship. Here, Solomon provides us with two commands and then several warnings in between to make sure that we're not irreverent in our worship. So let's read Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, and we'll pray, and we'll dive right in. Here's God's word for us. The preacher writes, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, but you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through abundant endeavors and the voice of a fool through abundant words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and wreak destruction on the work of your hands? For many dreams and vanities are many words. Rather, fear God. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, would you please allow us to not just understand this text, but to live it. We are dependent on your Spirit to illumine our hearts, and so we plead with you to teach us, to correct us, to restore us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, here's our main idea for this morning. In verses 1 through 7, 
The preacher helps us put God in his rightful place so that we would worship him as he rightly deserves. Again, the preacher helps us put God in his rightful place so that we would worship him as he rightly deserves. Listen, worshiping God is the greatest thing in all the earth. It is our primary joy and it is our responsibility, but oftentimes we, if we're being honest, we approach God in worship with kind of a casual attitude, always judging the service by what we get out of it, kind of giving it a scorecard, treating it like a movie, rotten tomatoes. But true worship, listen, it's really all about God. God is holy. God is in his temple. He knows all. He sees all. And that, for us, should produce a kind of fear and reverence. It should guard us. It should guide us in everything that we do and everything that we say as we worship. And so Solomon here teaches us how to worship God with wisdom. And the way he does that real cleverly here in this section is he sandwiches all of these admonitions of what to do and not to do with two commands, one at the very beginning and one at the end. Watch your steps, he says in verse 1. He concludes with fear God in verse 7. And again, all the imperatives in between, they form an inclusio of how we're to worship him and how we're not to. So what these verses do is they provide kind of a panoramic view. So think of it this way. There's a certain approach that we come to God with There's a reality of when we're worshiping God, and then after, when we leave a place of worship, there's a responsibility for us. And so there's a before, there's a during, and there's an after. And that's going to guide our time as we look at these seven verses. So here's our outline. Verse 1, we're going to look at the preparation. Verse 2, our prayers. Starting in verse six through or 4 through 6, our promises. And then verse 7 will be our posture, our preparation, our prayers, our promises, and our posture. Again, we're trying to learn, discern what true, wise worship looks like. Let's start with our preparation there in verse 1. This should be a reminder to you, guard your steps. When we come to God in worship, it requires preparation. Be mindful when you come to worship God. Watch your steps. Be careful. That's what Solomon is saying. Think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Check your motives. Check your heart. Why? Because we're not just passing the time here. It's not like we're just going to our buddy's house and shooting the breeze. No, we're coming to worship the King of Kings, the creator of the universe. We're coming to the place where Almighty God has chosen to meet with his creation. I'm pretty sure if any of you had an opportunity to go to the Oval Office, I'm sure that you would at least figure out what you were wearing. You would think about how you would address the president and what you would say and what you would not say. How much more when we come before the throne of the king of the universe? Oh, church, we must be very intentional, very mindful of who 
we are coming to worship. When Moses met with God in the wilderness, God instructed him, Moses, take off your sandals. For the place where you're standing is holy ground. It's not that the dirt was holy. It's God's presence there over that dirt that made it holy. Now, we said last week that our approach to God and our reverence for God should be with an eagerness to listen, listening to his word rather than rushing in with hurried speech. And that's really what this text emphasizes. We're to draw near to listen rather than to speak. And we see that most clearly here in the context. Look at the words there in the text. It conveys this idea of speech. You have the sacrifice in fools in verse what verse 1, which isn't really describing animal sacrifices. It's true that people did bring lame and uh, blind and sick animals to sacrifice. That is foolish in God's eyes. But what God is talking about here is the fools who use verbose speech. Verse 2 there says, don't be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart. We're reminded of this truth that out of the abundance of the heart, what speaks? The mouth. Verse 2 says not to be hasty with our mouth. Don't be hasty in bringing up a matter. That word there is debar. It just means word or speech. The end of verse 2 says, let your words be few. Look there at verse 3. The voice of a fool comes through the abundance of words. Verse 4 highlights the making of vows with our mouths. Verse 6, don't allow your mouth to cause you to sin and don't say in the presence of a messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice? And then look there at verse 7, for in many dreams and vanities are many words. So again, the emphasis here is clearly on the words of our mouth and the need to do more listening than speaking. So listen, we must be mindful of our speech, thoughtful in our speech when we come to God and worship. Not only is listening to God better than sacrifice, but brevity in prayer is better than extravagance. Look there in verse 2. It begins with the admonition, Do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart to bring up a matter in the presence of God. And this leads us here now to point number two, that we need to be wise in our worship, especially in our prayers. Now, the question is, what does it mean to be hasty with your mouth? That verb there, bahal, it just means to be in a hurry. You're rushing. To make haste. It's used by the preacher in chapter 7 and verse 9 in connection with a hot and quick-tempered man. In other places, it's often used for wild, rash, and mindless conduct. This is what we read in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Same word. And you're familiar with this proverb. One of the six things that the Lord hates, yes, seven that are abomination to him. It says in 618, A heart that devises wicked thoughts and feet that hasten to run to evil. And so what Solomon is saying here is, look, instead of being hasty and impetuous, no, we're supposed to be, as followers of Christ, we're supposed to be poised, controlled, measured, thoughtful, both in our speech and our actions. 
wise in our communication and our conduct. That's the exact opposite of an impulsive heart. You see, the opposite of being impulsive is to be deliberate and intentional. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, it is not the length of our prayers, but the strength of our prayers that make a difference. You get what Spurgeon is saying there. He's not discounting long prayers. Jesus, in fact, prayed all through the night. He rebuked his disciples who couldn't stay up for at least one hour to pray. So he's not condemning long prayers. He's just making sure if you have long prayers, they better be very thoughtful, intentional prayers. We don't want to just spew out a bunch of religious phrases. Why? Because God is not impressed with your eloquence. I remember at Masters, we had what they called a college view. And so high schoolers would come and they would spend the weekend and kind of get a feel for the, the college and I had this young man who I think was a junior in high school. He came and he was checking out the university there. And I remember sitting in the dorm room and uh, we had a time of prayer. And so he launched into a prayer and this is what he said. O God and Heavenly Father, grant to us the serenity of mind to accept that which cannot be changed, courage to change that which can be changed, and wisdom to know one from the other through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I've never heard that before. So I thought, wow, this guy's like 15? How, how thoughtful. How awesome. I said, hey, what does serenity mean? He's like, I don't know. It's just, this is the serenity prayer. I just say that all the time. There's a disconnect there. It sounds great, but is your heart meaning those words? Is your mind engaged with the things that you're saying? Listen, God is not impressed with religious language. We don't come to God speaking Christianese. And so I want to challenge us this morning. Are we guilty of this? Guilty of spewing out thoughtless and meaningless words when we pray to God? Are we guilty of allowing our mouth to outpace our mind? Maybe this was modeled for you. I know when I was a young Christian, I patterned my prayers after people in our church. And so if everyone starts a prayer with, Lord, I just thank you for this day, and you say just like a million times during your prayer, I just picked it up and just just this, just that, and just this, and Lord, Father, God, this, and Lord, Father, God, that. Brothers and sisters, look, I don't want to be unnecessarily critical but I want us to heed Solomon's caution when we pray. That we not get in the habit of reciting mindless religious formulas when we pray to God. Kids, if you are in here, I want you to listen to this. When you pray to God, talk to him like your father is right in front of you. There's no need to be fancy. You don't have to put on a show. Be respectful. Be reverent. Be humble, but we have the freedom to speak to God. We just need to be sure that we're not rambling on and on and on. Look, anyone who tries to worship God without thinking deeply and carefully ends up offering what the Bible says here is the sacrifice of fools. 
They are sinning against God and they don't even know it. And you say, how is that even possible? What well, happens all the time? People are just in the habit of doing the same old thing that they've always done and they don't give any attention to what they're doing. It's impulse-based, feeling-based, and that kind of worship is despicable to God. So listen, wise worship, it requires us using the right words and using those right words at the right time. We need to be careful. We need to be calculated rather than hasty and half-hearted when we direct our words toward the living God. And you say, well, Dom, why is this such a big deal? And the reason is stated right there in verse 2. Look down at it. For God is in heaven, but you are on earth. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago, this is the most theologically jam-packed statement of the passage. Why? Because it provides a framework. It gives us a theology proper, and it gives us an anthropology. And what Solomon's point is, he's saying there's an asymmetry between the creator and the creation. There is a ginormous chasm between God and between man. And Solomon is helping us to see this difference, that God is wholly other. The distance, the difference between the creator and the creation is staggering. Now, I used to think of God like, honey, I shrunk the kids. When you get shrunk down and like you've got this big old giant, and that's how I felt like was my relationship with God is. That's not the reality. There's all kinds of little bugs outside. Do you realize that we are a lot closer to those bugs than we are to God? God is infinitely holy, and we are infinitely not apart from Christ. Which means that when we come to him in worship, we need to be all ears. We need to listen to him. We need to listen to how he desires to be worshiped. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20 reads this, but Yahweh is in his holy temple. And what's the conclusion? Let all the earth be silent before him. You say, well, Pastor Dom, I've got a question. How do you square that that Old Testament text and many other Old Testament texts that talk about the kind of reverence and fear and silence we have to have with New Testament realities of coming before the throne with confidence and the new covenant which says that we have access to God. How, how do we square these two things? It's a great question. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That passage is describing all the things that we need from God. Oh, we need mercy. We need grace. We have a great need. So we're coming to him in dependence on him. And listen, we cannot approach the throne of grace with confidence unless we are covered by the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Jesus, our high priest. He was the acceptable, atoning sacrifice for our sins that allows us access. And when we think about what was required to give us this access, then we approach with the highest amount of respect and fear because of what Jesus had to do in order for us to have this access. Listen, God knows all, 
and he sees all, and he hears all, which means you don't have to wax eloquent in prayer. Come with eager receptivity rather than rushed speech. And now the preacher elaborates on this truth there in verse 3, and he does that with illustration. Take a look there, verse 3. He says, For the dream comes through abundant endeavor, and the voice of a fool through abundant words. Now that is a proverbial saying. And look down there at verse 7. He states almost the exact same thing. He says, For in many dreams and vanities are many words. You say, well, what's Solomon trying to communicate here with this, this imagery, this illustration? And the truth is, it's kind of hard to interpret. That word dream is only used here in chapter 5. And it has a lot of different uses in the Old Testament. But I think we get a clue with the relationship here with this idea of abundant endeavor and dreams. That, that word endeavor, hinyan, is the same word the preacher uses throughout the book. It describes the toil of work. I was just talking with someone outside in the foyer about how difficult work is. The long week it was tiring, it was exhausting. That's what Solomon talks about in the first four chapters. There is toil, there, there's labor, there's effort. Ecclesiastes 2.23 tells us that our labor and toiling is painful and vexing. So what the preacher is saying with this proverb is that you have long and exhausting and laborious days and weeks, and you go home, and you sleep, and you dream. But all that takes place in your dream is not real. Now, some of you probably wish some of your dreams were real. If you're like me, you dream of cool stuff like flying, teleporting from one place to the next. Maybe some of you dream about acing an exam or becoming rich. Maybe if you're single, you have a dream of meeting the man or woman of your dreams. But no matter what your experience in your dream, when you wake up, you realize what? It was just a dream. And that's the point. Much toil brings about dreams, and dreams are not reality. So in the same way, when we multiply words, it amounts to the same thing. It's nothing. Nothing before God. The only thing that we get from talking and talking and talking without thinking is that we prove that we're fools. That's all thoughtless words. That's all meaningless mantras reveal. They expose the foolishness of the one speaking. And I know this because growing up as a Catholic and going to the Catholic school, Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord's with you. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord, home, full of grace. And on and on and on and on with the Hail Marys. You know, Hail Mary doesn't even get off the ground. Repeating the Lord's Prayer, if done thoughtlessly, greatly dishonors God. And so Solomon says prayers are like dreams. They're hevel, vanity. There's no substance. So listen, prior to coming to the house of God, we need to prepare our hearts we need to be humble. We need to be receptive. We need to come and listen more than we come to speak. And when you are in God's presence, you need to be mindful of our words, thoughtful, intentional. Let the word of God inform our thinking and then 
we're to respond with the appropriate speech. Well, what about after worship? After worship, it's very simple. Follow through on what you've said during worship. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and when you do speak, be faithful to follow through. That brings us to our third point, our promises, verses 4 through 6. Look there at the text with me. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Do not allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and wreak destruction on the work of your hands? Now, this is important. We need some biblical background. What is a vow? The repetition here is obvious. Four times in just these two verses, this word vow occurs. And we don't use that word vow very often unless maybe we're talking about it in the context of a wedding ceremony where we're making marriage vows. But you know this, a vow is simply a commitment. That's what a vow is. It is a commitment. It's a commitment to do something. You give your word and then you follow through with an action. You honor your commitments. And you know this too, that a vow is much stronger than a suggestion. It's much stronger than the possibility. You're not saying, hey, I might do, or I hope to do. No, you're saying, I am committing myself to do this thing. The English proverb dating back to Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice reads, an honest man's word is as good as his bond. Now, as you go to the Old Testament, you see several people making Old Testament vows. Jacob is the very first in Genesis 28. Look at this with me in verse 20. It says this, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey on which I am going, and, I, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh will be my God. Jacob setting the terms for if he's going to worship God or not. Other vows, many of you are familiar with Jephthah's foolish vow in Judges chapter 11 and Hannah's vow when she was barren in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The interesting thing about all these vows is that they're all conditional. You catch that? There's an if-then component to it. If the Lord does this, then I will do this. If he grants this, then I will do this. If he provides victory, if he provides a baby, then, and then the promise is made. But you know, it's fascinating that nowhere in Scripture you won't find one place where God commands us to make vows. Nowhere. And yet... Because man is so prone to try and strike a deal with God, God gave plenty of instructions for when vows were made. Look here at Deuteronomy chapter 23. When you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall do not, not delay to pay it. For Yahweh your God will surely require it of you and it will be a sin in you. However, if you refrain from vowing, 
It will not be a sin in you. You shall be careful and do what goes out from your lips. Just as you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God, that which you spoke with your mouth. Or how about Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. If a man makes a vow to Yahweh or swears an oath to bind him with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. You say, what do we learn from that? Well, it's simple. God takes vows very seriously. It's probably why the Proverbs in chapter 11 and verse 12 tells us that a man of understanding, he actually holds back his tongue. He holds his tongue back because he understands what it says in 1019. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who holds back his lips, Proverbs says, has insights. Or listen to Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 25. It is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and after the vow to make inquiry. You see, he's got this backwards. You don't make vows first and then consider, wait, what did I just say? Listen, making vows is not the real issue. It's making impulsive promises without thoughtful consideration. That's the problem. And that's what Solomon says is foolish. See, the problem is that it's much easier to make a vow than to keep a vow. I remember when I was 20 years old, not a believer, I came home one day after basketball practice, my mom battling cancer for a second time. She was on what I thought was maybe her deathbed. She was not responding to me. I was terrified. And in that moment, I made a vow. I said, God, if you spare my mom, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Now, I don't know if God answered my prayer, but what I do know is that I made a vow. And I didn't hear an audible voice from God, but what I did hear was, go and read my word. And that's what I did, and that's what transformed my life forever. Now, fast forward. I am saved. I'm loving Jesus. I'm growing in the word. And I want a woman next to me that can run with me. And I said, Lord, if you provide me with a woman, I will not kiss her until we get married. And I made this vow. And I didn't keep the vow. And I'm very thankful that I'm not dead right now because I trifled with God. Oh, Jess and I, we we stayed pure. But when I got engaged, I began to rationalize. I had made a promise. I'm not going to kiss a girl until I marry her. But I said, well, I'm engaged. It's we're, And I trifled with God. And I mean this with all seriousness. I am so thankful that he did not strike me dead. Goofing around, playing around making promises without thinking through them critically. God says in Psalm 76, 11, you make vows to the Lord your God and you fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be 
feared. And so listen, we're going, we're swimming against the tide here. Our culture is not about commitments. We see this all the time when politicians promise things and go back on their word. In fact, we get more surprised when people keep their word because we're so used to them not keeping their word. Jesus dealt with the same thing in his day where the religious leaders, they like to cross their fingers and make promises. They made these arbitrary and trivial distinctions about what made an oath binding. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. You're familiar with this passage, Jesus just delivering a ton of woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 16, we read this. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and as a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around and see and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated, you fools and blind men, for which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the altering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And you're familiar with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You shall not make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And then here's this statement. Let your yes be what? Yes, and your no be no. And then he says, Anything beyond these is of the evil one. And this is where you say, well, Pastor, that's why I don't make vows. In fact, that's why I don't commit to anything, because I don't want to break my word. Well, I want to just share two things with you real quick. First of all, it's not a proof text to be noncommittal. Yeah, no. The admonition is not don't commit to anything. The admonition is when you commit to something, keep your commitment. Second of all, I just want to remind you, hopefully to maybe recapture a healthy fear, that you have made some serious vows. Take, for instance, your marriage vow. Before the Lord, before your family, before all your friends, you promised a singular devotion to your spouse. Not just outwardly, inwardly. You said to have and to hold, to love and to cherish for how long? Till death do us part. Now, some of you, you wrote your own vows. I know that because I've officiated some of those weddings. And you said things like, I will lead you. I will serve you. 
I promise to forgive you. I promise to honor you. I promise to cherish you. I promise to be faithful to you. Don't trifle with the vows that you've made. How about parental vows? We don't do child dedications. We do parent dedications where we come before the church and along with the church, we're promising to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How about baptism? Gavin, last week, getting dipped in the waters of baptism, vowing to follow Christ for the rest of his life, to submit in humility. How about church membership vows? We had several people come up and made a covenant. We're committing to actually doing the one another's, not just reciting the one another's, not just memorizing the one another's, not just having Brooklyn put some sweet font up and posting the one another's in our house, but actually doing the one another's. Oh, I think we make more vows than we realize. How about every time we sing songs? We're praying while we're singing. And sometimes we're singing and praying, but we're somewhere else. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Do we mean the things that we sing? See, too often, more is said than actually done. But if our worship is deliberate, then our words become more dependable. So wise worship is thoughtful in its preparation. It's thoughtful in its prayers. It's thoughtful in its promises. And finally, its posture. Like many of Jesus' parables, you have to get to the end to hear the punchline. And here's the punchline in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And it's just this, fear God. Fear God. This is not a paralyzed fear. It's a posture of a healthy fear. It's us positioning ourselves under the mighty hand of God, understanding and recognizing that he is gloriously good. He is high and lifted up. He is lofty and we are low. Brothers and sisters, we need to nurture an attitude of awe and respect and admiration and humility and radical dependence on God. That's the point of the passage. That's actually the point of the book. Flip over to the last words of the book in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is what we read. Starting in verse 13. You want to know the end of the matter? What's the whole point? The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is the end of the matter for all mankind, for God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. See, the preacher tells us, fear God. That's the formula. That's the secret sauce. That's what we need to do in order to obey all the other admonitions. So if you want to be less insincere in your worship, fear God. If you want to be less impulsive in your prayers, fear God. If you want to be less impetuous with your promises, fear God. Listen, church, Yahweh deserves to be feared. 
He reigns. He's majestic. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He's awesome. He's above all things. And the Bible tells us he's in the host of the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Our worship before this God and our commitments made to him and in front of him are an extremely serious matter. You know, I think about Ananias and Sapphira. If they had just realized, if they had just realized that God was a consuming fire. Turn turn real quickly with me to Acts chapter 5. And we're almost done. Acts chapter 5. You know the story, but oh, would we learn from this couple. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and his wife with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you have done this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell and breathed his last, and great fear came on all who heard. Now, the question is, when you read the story, is what in the world's God doing here? Is he just a capricious God? Is he just having a mood swing and just decides to zap Ananias and later his wife, Sapphira? And let me just suggest this. Christ dies, he resurrects, he ascends, the Spirit comes down, the church explodes, Peter's preaching, thousands of people are saved at the first church, which is the church of Jerusalem. That is this church. Now, Ananias and Sapphira are not fearing God. They're fearing man. They want the focus to be on themselves, what they did, how great they are, how generous they are. And do you realize that Satan is behind all of this? Why has Satan put this in your heart? Why are you obeying Satan rather than the Holy Spirit? So do you realize the reason why God responds the way he does, not because there's a million churches and this one church, no big deal. No, this is the only church. And God is setting the example right from the get-go is that I am a holy God. And if we allow the fear of man and pretension, and if we allow people to worship any way they please, that is not going to be good for the church. And so he acts, he acts swiftly and severely. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you read the consequence, what does every Christian, how do they respond? With fear. And the church doesn't grow smaller, it grows bigger. God's desire, church, is that we fear him. That's what wise worship is. It begins, it continues, it ends with the fear of Yahweh. Let me just close with the words of J.I. Packer. When we think about fearing God, it's not passive, it's active. It's not something that you did one time, but you continue to do. I love these wise words from Brother J.I. Packer, and we'll close with this. He said, worship in the Bible is the due response of 
rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. It is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of his greatness and graciousness that he has given. It involves praising him for what he is, thanking him for what he's done, desiring him to get himself more glory for further acts of mercy and judgment and power, and trusting him with our concern for ours and others' future well-being. He said moods of awestruck wonder and grateful celebration are all a part of it. David danced with passionate zeal before the Lord when he brought up the ark to Jerusalem, and he also sat in humble amazement before the Lord when he was promised a dynasty, and his worship evidently pleased God on both occasions. He also says, Learning from God is worship too. Attention to his word of instruction honors him. Inattention is an insult. Acceptable worship requires clean hands and a pure heart and a willingness to express one's devotion in works of service as well as in words of adoration. That's a fantastic quote. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you please help us as we think about worship, what we're doing, why we're doing it, who we're worshiping, would you help us to never trifle with you, to come thoughtlessly before you. Father, prevent us from lacking preparation. Prevent us, God, from making promises that we do not intend on keeping. Father, help us to be deliberate in our prayers. Help us to be faithful, honest. Keep us from hastiness, half-heartedness. Oh Lord, by your Spirit, may we worship you in private, in public, and perpetually giving you the glory and honor that you deserve. This we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.